Welcome to the Grow Your Business and Grow Your Wealth podcast with Gary Helt. Gary is an expert in helping business owners put together a plan that will provide a better future for their businesses, themselves, and their families. On the podcast, Gary interviews other professionals who share his vision, and together they share secrets and strategies any business owner can use to build a better financial foundation for your business and your life. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, This week, my guest is Carmen Rosas, and she's the founder and lead counsel for Carmen Rosas Law. Welcome, Carmen. Hi, Gary. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. So tell us, what what made you get into law? Oh, that's such a loaded question. (laughs) Um, So it's funny, I get the question, you know, did you know you always wanted to be an attorney? And for me, it was, it was a no, I knew I wanted to get into business. You know, my goal was like, I'm going to be the CEO of some large company, climb the corporate ladder and tell everyone what to do. And then I was in law and I went to undergrad and hated my business 101 classes. I was like, where's the business? You know, how do I tell me how I run a business? Um, I didn't want to do econ and all of that. Um, and then as I was, so I decided to major in anthropology because I just loved it and studying different cultures. But as I was gearing up towards, you know, end of junior year, beginning of senior year, and they're like, what are you doing with your life after college? I was like, oh, I guess I need to figure that out. (laughs) Had done an emphasis in law and society within my anthropology department. So we studied the legal systems in New Zealand with the U.S. legal system. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. Let's go to law school. You know, easy peasy, applied to law school and ended up in law school. I will say that I tried to quit law school twice. (laughs) I was going to go into marketing. I was going to go into interior design. At that point, I was ready to do anything. Um, Was living, so I'm from California, Bay Area native, moved to Ohio for law school, which was very much a culture shock. And law school alone is a culture, you know, it's just a shock in terms of the workload. So it's like, take me back home. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, but ended up coming back to California and was like, I've been doing the law. So I continued on and here I am. What made you um, decide to, to kind of get into the estate planning side of things with it? Yeah. So estate planning, you know, I had never heard of a living trust or a will until I was in my wills and trust class in law school. Um, I'm the first in my family to go to college, um, the only attorney in my family. So kind of paving the way. Um, And so I was um, getting, I was, I graduated from law school, was waiting for bar results and my grandmother passed away. And she had piecemealed some DIY documents that she found on the internet um, and was, you know, had a living trust. And then she had her will, but the, the language didn't match up, right? There were some things that were left out. She didn't properly fund her trust, which means, you know, she didn't actually have any assets. So she had, I like to say a trust is like a treasure box. So she had this beautiful treasure box with nothing in it. Um, And so that's basically what we had. And I saw my mom trying to navigate it um, uh, from a legal, you know, perspective. She's mourning the loss of her mother, who was her best friend, right? And then also trying to navigate the legal system, had no idea what to do. Lucky for us, right? Because here I am, almost a lawyer. I was working for an attorney who was like, hey, if you do all the work, you pay the, you know, filing fees, I will um, kind of mentor you and guide you through it. So we were very fortunate in that 
It didn't cost us a lot of money other than my time. <laughs> um, but I was able to kind of work through what we call as like a Hegstead petition where we say, hey, judge, we have these documents that look beautiful and they look great, but there's nothing in it. There's nothing to it. There doesn't own anything. And so then we get the judge to say, okay, go ahead and, you know, make this a trust asset and then you can go. So it helps us avoid the probate process, which is the full on, you know, if you had no documents, um, but you still have to go through a, a court process. And at that time it was 60 days. Now with the way courts are, you know, inundated with cases, it's, it's probably a lot longer. Um, and so I just thought, hey, if I know this parts of it, and there are so many people who have no idea what estate planning is, don't know what a living trust is, don't know what a will is, or, you know, and they're working so hard for these assets, you know, whether it's growing a business or purchasing property, um, raising kids. Um, and so I decided, hey, let's get into estate planning and see how many more people we can help. What do you, what do you see from a, a mistake standpoint? What are, what are people, some of the common mistakes people are making when it comes to estate planning? Yeah. So one is not understanding the difference between a will and a trust. Um, I think that those words get tossed around interchangeably, right? Some people will think like, oh, it's a stupid question, but it's actually a very valid question because people will say, well, my friend said to get a will or someone said to get a trust, but I don't need a will. And so just from my experience with my grandmother's estate, right, I always say get both. And a little bit about the differences between the two is a will still has to go through the probate process, right? So we have three different categories of plans, which is no plan, which is the state default, you go through probate. You have to deal with the court process um, and you it gets distributed based on next of kin. Second option is you have a will only plan where the will still will have to go through probate, but it gives instructions to the judge. Um, so it says, hey judge, this is where I want my assets. You know, I only want 50% to go to my children, I want 25 to charity and 25 to, you know, my boyfriend or my partner or whoever else, you know, you get to distribute and decide. Whereas the probate plan, it gets just divided equally to next of kin. And then you have your final plan, which is the trust-based plan. And that trust-based plan um, allows you to keep everything out of court, right? It's not a public record, it's private. And the person who maintains your trust automatically receives the key when you pass. So as I mentioned, right, a trust or as trust is a, as a treasure box, you hold the key, right? Until you pass away. With, with the trust, you pass the key on um, within those documents. So the next person automatically has control of your assets. If you have just a will, you'll have to wait until the court says, okay, sure, this person gets to be in charge and there's a delay, right? I, assets are frozen. Um, and even if you're married, you have you will have to go to court if it's, you know, you have bank accounts in, um, in individual names, you don't have a joint bank account because everyone has their play money, right? Um, that situation, that money gets frozen until the court says, okay, you're married, you get to access it. Or, hey, this person is gonna be appointed to now access. So the difference is, right, um, the court process one and then timing, which is huge. So now you talk, you just talked about, you know, some of the differences will and, and trust. So if I'm, it, it, you know, my mom passed away and she has a will, um, what do I have to have? Because I mean, you know, you hear the horror stories about trying to go to the bank and all this stuff. Yeah. So if I got a copy of the will, can I just go to the bank with a copy of the will? No. So the will has to actually be what we call lodged. So basically placed with the court for, and then it becomes a court um, public record. So the judge will, and it has to go through the whole probate process. Um, so the judge will give you what's called letters of administration based on the will. And so it functions very similarly to 
a non-will estate. So if no will or will, you still have to go through the probate process. Sometimes depending on the state can be more simplified with um, a will, but you still have to go through the, the probate, the court process. So some order is going to be given. So, but, and then if I, if, if my mother had a trust, then, and I'm the, the person who she says, you know, has to, that, that administers everything. Is there another form that I get for that? That's kind of like the so you just, better administration? You take the trust. You can ask the attorney that created the trust to create what's called a certificate of trust and you sign it in front of a notary. Um, but typically if you take the trust itself with the death certificate and you go to the bank and you say, hey, she's passed away or you know, there's proof of some sort that she's actually passed, um, then you will get immediate access to those accounts so long as they're held in the trust name. If they're not titled as trust assets, then it becomes a little trickier and you have to go through the court process again. Okay, so, and this is all different than if I have a power of attorney for her. Yes. So power of attorney is fabulous in case she's incapacitated. So she loses capacity and she's so incapacitation, right? Is you're alive, but you can't make your own decisions. So whether that's medical or financial power of attorney, um, that dies when you die, um, which means that if she passes, it's no longer a valid document. Um, so it's great while she's alive, say she's in the hospital, you can go and deal with the finances, move the, you know, get money out, pay bills, all of that, or make medical decisions for her. But the moment that she dies, and obviously it depends on the language within the trust, it doesn't exceed more than 30 days. Um, but typically it will die when the individual dies. And so upon death, it's not valid. And if there's no additional estate documents, right, like a trust or a will, then we're looking at the probate process again. Okay. Um... When, when clients come in to see you, what are some of the big fears that they have? Um, that's a great question. So one thing that comes up a lot is, and actually will hold people back from actually creating their plan is they're like, well, what if it changes? What if I change my mind? And the great thing is, is you can revoke and as long as it's a revocable trust, right? And it's, and, and my clients mostly come in for, I will say, you know, it's a maybe a couple, someone's passed away, they have kids, they have a couple of bank accounts, maybe retirement accounts and a house, right? They're not, these are not people with large, large estates, um, or maybe they're running a business, like a family run business, or maybe it's growing. Um, but they come in and they're like, I want to do this, but I want to be able to make changes. And so if you have a revocable trust and even all of your documents, um, as long as you have the capacity to change, to make decisions, you can change them at any time. You can change them every five years. You can change, you know, I have clients who are like, oh, 20 years later, I guess I should relook at these documents. I have a client who comes in every year wanting to make, <laughs> wanting to make changes. And, you know, you could literally go in every, every other week if that was what you wanted. But as long as you have the capacity um, you can change, you know, anything that's within the documents. And obviously if there's life changes, a death, a divorce, a birth, something big happens, right? You move out of state, um, you want to actually sit down, review your plan and make changes so they meet your current life's style and circumstances. And then of course, right, as your children get older, if you have minors, right, and we're looking at six and seven-year-olds, say you have two kids, six and seven, and you're like, oh, they don't get any of their money until they're like 30, 35, and 40. We're going to do a structured trust and they're going to be trust fund kids. But then you realize, okay, they're, you know, in their 20s and they're pretty financially responsible. I would be comfortable with them getting all of their money now 
um, and for, or for certain purposes. And then of course, then you revisit them at that point too. So always being able to revisit and make changes. Nothing is set in stone until you become incapacitated or pass away. So in doing this living trust, uh, basically I still have control, hundred percent control of everything. Yeah, right? absolutely. And so, you know, I know you have a lot of business owners, right. Who are, who listen in. And so, um, I, the question I asked that get asked a lot is, do I need an EIN? Do I need a new tax ID number? And the answer is no, not until the, you know, so if it's a joint trust, right, the last of the spouse passes away. So the trust, as long as you're alive, functions with your social security number. There's no special taxes, you know, that need to be paid, no tax returns that need to get done. Once you pass, um, and again, right, I'm speaking kind of in a more general, right. I would say, quote unquote, simple right. <laughs> trust, right? Not if you have something super complex or have taxable, you know, estates. Um, these are kind of like more average, you know, working class, we're all running businesses and things like that. Um, but you do not need to change. It doesn't become its own entity as in like, you know, say an LLC or a corporation until um, you pass away. And at that point, that's when we would file um, for an EIN and we would get a new tax ID number and everything would transfer into the trust and it would become its own entity and kind of functions like a business would. Okay. Um, I've heard that the nightmares of people that um, with, with retirement accounts or, or uh, insurance policies and stuff would have one person named as a beneficiary but in their, their will or trust, they say in there, they want it to go to someone different. How, how does that work? Yeah, short, short answer is beneficiary designation prevails. Um, and so, yes, you know, in cases of second marriages and, you know, or I, you know, even with, you know, people will put their kids down that are minors, um, which blows my mind, but also what you don't know, what you don't know, right? right. Or they leave their mother-in-law to be in charge or even their mom in charge of the assets for the kid. Um, a couple of things that I'd love to say about that is even if you have it in your will and your trust, it doesn't matter. The companies, retirement accounts, life insurance, they will go with whatever is on the beneficiary designation, right? So if you get divorced, make sure you're updating your beneficiary forms. Um, don't list your kids. The other part is that even if you list, say, your mother to take care of your kid's assets, right, who's a minor, um, that money is now hers. It is not. It does not belong to your child, does not belong to anybody else. The money belongs to whoever is listed on the form. Now, from a legal standpoint, right? From a moral standpoint, like if she knows, oh, it's supposed to be, then it, should, it basically is at will. Um, she'll get to decide if she's actually going to use that money for that purpose, or she can run off and, you know, vacation and, you know, do whatever she wants with it. Um, so whoever you list on the, de the beneficiary designation form is the person that becomes the owner of that money. Um, so if you're, even if you're married and you have children, I always say you can list your spouse, but make sure the, the trust is a secondary or contingent beneficiary. So, you know, if something happens to the both of you, it will go into the, the trust and split up and designated the way you have within those documents. And same with minor children. Um, I would not recommend leaving anything to your minor children outright. You put it into the trust name and it will be distributed based on the terms of your trust. Yeah, no, that's, that's good advice. Um, what are some of the, the challenges that you're facing 
you know, right now with, uh, with dealing with the estates and trusts and stuff? Oh, so, <laughs> um, well, right now, I mean, dealing with trusts and estates, right, is if you have an estate plan, it's not bad. Um, it's the situation where if you don't, right, probate courts are inundated with new cases. Um, and even if you leave out an asset, right, I just spoke with a client today who had a safe deposit box. Everything else was in their trust. Um, but the, the safe deposit box was not in um, the trust name. So now we have to do what's called the Hexted petition. So we're still going to end up in court because it wasn't properly funded. Um, and so I think that's one of the things um, people are refinancing their homes. Oh, this is a great tip. If you refinance your home, <laughs> make sure that the home gets put back into the trust name. If not, you will be looking at an improperly funded trust, right? Um, and title companies will pull it out, give you the money and won't necessarily put it back in. Just be mindful of that and make sure it gets put in. Um, and then the other part of it is individuals wanting to add their children or gifting their children outright while they're alive. Um, and that's one, one area that gets tricky, right? Obviously with you from a tax perspective, um, capital gains, um, you know, re property tax reassessment, like all, so many different issues that come up. And in California, we have something called Prop 19 where the parent to child, um, you know, exemption is now gone, has gone away. Um, and people don't understand that. And so making sure that you meet with someone who does like tax advising and tax planning, as well as an estate planning attorney, and not just what you hear from neighbors or, you know, people right. who have quote unquote gone through the process already. Yeah. Cause I, I know back when I started, uh, doing taxes and stuff, a lot of people, we're just transferring from, you know, from mom to, to kid. And then it's like, oh, this is my way. And in case I got to be put into a home that I don't have any assets and, and so forth. Um, and then what ends up coming back and biting them because now you were just gifted that property, you know, so your basis is now whatever your mom's or parents' basis is you go to sell it, you're paying a whole lot mm -hmm. more in taxes than, yeah. than they ever would have. Well, and that's the great thing, right? Not the great thing, right? Was well, when you die, the property that you own gets what we call that step up in basis, right? Where you now it's no longer, you know, for here, especially I'm in Silicon Valley, right? Homes were purchased for like $60,000, like in, you know, the sixties. Um, and that's amazing. And now they're valued at 1.2 million, 1.8 million. Like imagine being gifted a property um, and then you go to sell it um, outside of a trust. You're doing capital, you're looking at capital gains, right? From like a 60, you know, to the million. Right. You may be, <laughs> you may not profit at all. Right. Um, you know, there's probably limits to it, of course, but that's the whole point. Like, whereas if you have it in a trust and then you go to sell it, right? It's from the date of death versus, you know, you know, 40, 50 years ago or however long it was, but you're looking at the, the, the difference between a date of death to a date of sale. And if it's within the year, right, there's, there's certain, um, limits. And so if it's within a year, you likely won't pay any capital gains. Um, so you don't have to worry about that. And so not only does it keep a trust, keep you out of probate, but it helps with, um, reducing capital gains or at least minimizing them. Right. What about like titling bank accounts? You know, it's like, okay, your, your mom, yes, she has her house and a couple bank accounts and stuff like that. How do you, uh, how would you have her title those accounts? So then when she passes, you know, the accounts go to you. 
Yeah. The best thing to do is put everything in your trust. <laughs> right. um, so she would list her name as the trustee of her trust um, on all accounts, on all beneficiary designations, on properties, everything that she owns, safe deposit box. And it may feel like a pain in the butt to do right now, right? Oh, I have to go to the bank. Oh, especially if you have like, you know, I had one gentleman who had a bank account at every bank within, you know, like a five mile radius of him because he did, he only kept enough up to like the 250, like the FDIC insured amount. So he opened accounts in numerous banks. Um, so that may be a little bit of a pain, right? For the most part, people have maybe two to three banks that they're working with. Um, going in and just doing it all at once is going to save you a lot more time, not even yours, right? But gives you peace of mind, but your loved ones that you leave behind who have to then go and navigate the system without you, right? They're mourning the loss of you. They're mourning the loss of a loved one. And now they have to go deal with these people at the bank or these legal institutions. And it's frustrating because those individuals are just doing their job, right? But there's loopholes. There's, you know, there's, um, you know, hoops we have to jump through to, meet their legal requirements and nobody wants to deal with that. And so if you go ahead and you set everything up in the trust name now, it will be so much smoother for the people that you leave behind. Yeah. Um, I, I think that one of the things that's important, I mean, because obviously if you have the living trust, it's going to going to going to document everything. Mm -hmm. But I just always tell people, you know, if if not anything, just you know, please write a letter to your kids or whoever to say, hey, this is where everything is from this is who prepares my taxes. Here's, here's my estate attorney. This is where I have bank accounts and stuff because there's so many times that, that I've tried to help individuals on the tax returns. And then it's like two years later, they say, oh, here, I just got this letter from this bank that, you know, unclaimed property because I haven't, you know, there hasn't been any activity and I didn't know that Bob had an account there. Yeah. So, yes. So that's some of the stuff that, that we run into. And it's like, wow, nobody knew. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that we provide for our clients is what we call like a schedule A, right? Where it's like everything you own and people are like, oh, but is that really important? There's only a couple. Yes, put everything down. And they're like, well, what is the point of this? And I said, the point of it is that your trustees, the people who come after you will know exactly where they need to go to collect all of your money. Even if you have $5 in it, put it down just because it will give us an inventory, right? Of your assets and all of the people they need to reach out to all of the accounts um, and, you know, account numbers, ideally, right? Um, I even suggest having like, you know, online logins, right? All of your bank logins in a safe place, things like that, just to make it easier um, for everyone. Yeah, yeah, because I definitely, you know, again, like you said, it's like, you know, whoever you've left behind, they're grieving. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have this, it's making it even more difficult on them. And you know, they're probably, you know, some of them are probably saying bad things about you because you left them. And then now you left them with this mess. So they're saying even worse things. So. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's funny, you know, how you said, um, oh, you should at least let them know who does your taxes, things like that. And the one question that I get a lot is, well, what do I do with my documents when they're done? Do I have to give them to my family? Do I have to like tell people? And you don't, you don't have to tell anyone. Right. All you need to do is say, hey, this is where I store my important documents. So they know how to find it because I have had situations where people cannot find their documents. Oh, yeah. um, or tell them who the attorney is that plant that drafted them. And that way, at least at minimum, right, they can contact the attorney's office and say, hey, I know you drafted plans for my mom, my dad, et cetera. 
Um, they passed away. What are my next steps? And they should, you know, especially now with the digital age, right? I know I maintain digital copies for all of my clients. So either they will recognize them as a client and say, oh yes, we do have this. Um, but that way it's helpful to your loved ones again, right? To know where to go um, in case. Right. Now, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you got started? Oh, <laughs> um, that's a loaded question. Yeah. Um, in terms of like my estate planning practice yep. and business, yep. a lot of people have no idea what an estate plan is. Right. Um, and there's a lot of resistance to it. Um, and the other part too, is looking at, well, why are people so resistant to it? Right. And I think part of it is that everyone is facing their own mortality when we start talking about death planning, right? Yep. Because that's really what it is. We call it estate planning, but it's really death planning, um, or incapacitation, but you're no longer in control of your body, your life. Um, and you're picking someone else to be in charge, which can be very heavy. You're like, who do I trust to continue to take care of me and manage my finances the way that I would, or take care of my kids the way that I would. Um, and so a lot of it is just people get scared. Like they're, you know, death is a scary topic, you know, like taxes. Right. But like, those are the two constants, death and taxes, like it's going to happen. And so might as well take a preventative approach versus dealing with, you know, like being on the defense, right. Be on the offense rather than the defense all the time. Um, and so I think that would be one of the biggest things is not, is that I never realized how afraid of death or their mortality, right, that people are, and being mindful of that, and compassionate, and understanding, and uh, empowering them, really, to make these decisions, so they're in control beyond the grave, right, people like having control, so, it, you know, explaining, oh, you, you'll maintain the control beyond the grave, is sometimes helpful. Yeah, I, I yeah, just to kind of piggyback that, it's like, you know, like everything else, you put together a plan, and if you don't do this, then basically the government's going to put the plan together for you. Yep. And most of the time when the government puts a plan together for you, it's not going to be good. For <laughs> so, you know, you choose, do you want, you know, to, to give whoever you want mm -hmm. to give it to, you know, and, and benefit them where they don't have lots of times won't have the big tax burden. Yeah. Or do you want to go the route of the government being in charge, saying where the money goes and on top of it, being a huge tax burden. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you decide who's going to be in charge. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So Carmen, tell me, um, what have I not asked you that you wish I had? We've gone through a lot of stuff here pretty quick. Yeah. Um, I think, oh, that's a good one. Um, well, I think one thing would be on guardians, right? If, you know, I'm not sure how many of your listeners yep. have children, but um, making sure that you have both long-term and short-term guardians. So basically, if you don't have somebody that lives within 20 minutes of you, um, making sure that you appoint someone that is a short-term guardian. So for example, right, I give the example, like I live in the Bay Area, so Northern California. My brother lives in Southern California. It's about a six-hour drive if you're, you know, not going the speed limit. Right. Um could be longer, especially with the grapevine, road closures, accidents, never know. Um, and so with me being up north, you know, and him being, you know, a designated guardian, because he cannot get to my daughter within 20 minutes, I have appointed a 
a neighbor friend who lives like right around the corner from us that my daughter knows has playdates with her daughter. Uh, so she can, if something happens to me, then go and get my daughter. My daughter's in a safe place because the last thing you want is for your child to end up in foster care or in the system, even if it's temporarily, right? Say you're out on a date night and Friday night and there's an accident, you're in a coma, one of you passes away, et cetera, et cetera. They go to the babysitter and babysitter's like, oh, I have no idea, right? Or they say, oh, their, their guardian lives in Pennsylvania. They're not getting to California anytime soon. And so they will place the children in foster care temporarily until they can get a judge to either sign an emergency order or appoint a legal guardian that they're comfortable with. And so typically, if you have a blood relative close by, that's awesome. Um, but if you aren't, right, if you're one of those people who say are from California and you're relocated to Texas and all your family's in California, you need to make sure you have a temporary guardian within 20 minutes of where you live or where the child normally would be. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest things for like the parents listening is guardianships and making sure that's done. Actually, there's another one um, on business succession planning, right? So for the business owners who are all listening, um, making sure that you have a business succession plan in place, right? So whether you're a sole prop, an LLC, a, you know, corporation, making sure your bylaws and operating agreements are all, all have language as to what would happen if you pass away. How would things be transferred? Who would be in charge? Who would manage the finances? Um, again, that coupled with your durable power of attorney in case you're incapacitated, but making sure that your business documents and your, you have proper legal planning on that front. And I know you did an interview with um, a gentleman before, so go listen to that podcast too, but making sure that your business succession plan also is tied and connected to, and that everything matches up, right, with your estate plan. So your wealth and all that money that you're working for and busting your butt on um, gets properly transferred to your your loved ones in charities or wherever it is that you want your money to go. Yeah, I think that that's that that's really important because otherwise, if you don't have that for your business, then lots of times what's going to happen is just going to die on the vine because there's nobody's there to pick it up and and do something or close it out for you. Then whatever you have built up is just going to yeah drain away. That's for sure. Yep. So. Carmen, if people like what they've what they've heard and they want to reach out to you, how can they get in touch with you? So I'm on social media everywhere. If you just um, if you do a Google search of Carmen Rosas, you know, Attorney California, but my handles are I am Carmen Rosas or Carmen Rosas Law. My website is yourlegacyprotectionfirm.com. Um, but if you just searched my name, you I'll pop up. Lucky for me, I'm one of few, if not the only Carmen Rosas attorney. Um, so I'm easy to find. Great. Well, we really appreciate your time today and, and all your great wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Our guest this week uh, was Carmen Rosas, and she's the founder and lead counsel for Carmen Rosas Law. See you guys next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.